Welcome back to The Technology Pill, a podcast that looks at how technology is reshaping our lives every day and exploring the different ways that governments and companies use tech to increase their power. My name is Gus Hossein, and I'm the Executive Director of Privacy International. And, as ever, I'm here with Caitlin Bishop. Hey, Caitlin. Hello. (laughs) Hello. So, today, we're going to, well, talk about something that you're probably sick and tired of talking about, and that is COVID. It's been a while since we've discussed it on this podcast, and it's been going on for over a year now. And we thought this would be a good opportunity to look back on what has happened and ask ourselves, what's to come yet? It's tiring, and different people listening to this podcast in different parts of the world are going to find this slightly challenging in the sense that in some parts of the world, we're talking about the end of the pandemic. In other parts of the world, we're talking about falling back into a crevice of the pandemic. In other parts of the world, they're still waiting for the pandemic to hit. But that's also why this stop and look back and look around us is important because it'll help us understand where other places in the world are at, what's to come in those environments, and some of the challenges where we're still yet to face in countries such as the United States or the United Kingdom, where we think we've managed to make it through as heroes, <laughs> which uh, couldn't be further from the case. Yeah. So one of the things that I put on, we've got a list of things to talk about. One of the things I put on the list was, I don't know if you remember, but very early in the first UK lockdown, and this is because I wanted to talk about lockdowns, but very early in the first UK lockdown, we put out what was probably about our third podcast kind of as the tech pill um it might not even have been as the tech pill it might have been pre i guess branding which was just like little recommendations of things to watch or listen to that might be fun during a lockdown and i think it's really a weird one to listen to because i think it represents such a specific time in the lockdown process it was like two weeks i think or something very early on in the very first lockdown. I think we were heading into the Easter weekend or um, one of the bank holiday weekends. And it was, it was so, it was really weird. It's like, so in my head, the first lockdown was the strangest lockdown. Um, The first lockdown, you kind of went from this really odd, almost normal life, but also very, I guess, kind of like stressed or paranoid or worried state directly into complete non-functioning like for me because I was working from home completely like not entering the world at all because no one really had any idea about things like how transmission worked no one had any idea of what was really happening so it went from being kind of not really out in the world because of paranoia to entirely in and it was just it was just the biggest shift in lifestyle i think the first lockdown and you know i remember trying to work out how to get food delivered because all of the delivery slots and all of the places were closed and mum getting like weird bulk things from the deli down the road that couldn't open normally and like cleaning every surface which turned out maybe not to be the most useful response but it's just I and mean, there was this weird i guess optimism which is weird now in hindsight, but at the time it was quite nice of the kind of collective coming together. We're all doing this terrible, weird, strange thing collectively for the public good. And I think that's where the optimism of here are some fun things you can watch or listen to came from. It was like a time of loads of Zoom 
quizzes and parties and kind of a really strange, nice collectivism that I don't think has survived survived every single lockdown. But if you haven't listened to it, it's called Lockdown because we were imaginative. And yeah, it came out over a year ago. And I think it's just a really odd little time capsule that I wanted to mention. I think that that's beautiful. And it was um, what I loved. It was a diversity of voices at PI all talking about, yeah, what to do in, in lockdown. And I'm a parent and I was responsible for homeschooling over the last year. And so it was a very different experience in the sense that it was all the things that you were just talking about, Caitlin, plus having to entertain and educate <laughs> while doing all the other things, including wiping down surfaces, because at the time, that we, that's what we thought we had to do. And uh, it was... It was nice to hear the voices of colleagues talking about things that weren't work-related. There's actually there's, there's a whole load of unreleased audio. We got loads more recommendations than we put out, including one very long conversation between <laughs> me and one of our colleagues about, I think, Antigone. Like, I don't know, it was a really long moral philosophy conversation because that's what he was reading because he's a massive nerd. But he doesn't listen to the podcast, so it's fine. I can say that. <laughs> But no, so actually schools was another thing that is interesting to look back on. So the move of schools online and the increased uptake in education technology or ed tech was one of the things that's really interesting about the pandemic so far. So, you know, whether it's Zoom, whether it's Google Classroom, whether it's, you know, any any number of Khan Academy, any number of different education technologies, I think it's been an almost a massive accelerator for those companies in in some ways probably to some kids benefit particularly those you know who struggled to go to school or struggled with the school environment but also the rush to those technologies is what worried us i think back at the beginning because we we signed on to a letter i think with a ton of recommendations of here are the things to consider here are the things to worry about whether you're a school whether you're a government whether you're a public authority you know, when it comes to like privacy and data collection of these technologies, because people were going, beans, we're inside, kids need, still need to get educated, here is a technology, without necessarily maybe thinking through those steps as they would normally. Um, and that's one of the, I think, my worries coming out of the pandemic is technologies like proctorio at universities for, what's the word? Proctoring, that's the word, it's in the name proctoring exams and other technologies like it may not leave us as quickly as we would hope that they would um, and have had some really concerning implications for people trying to learn. So some of the proctoring technologies have been particularly bad because they work on the basis of like recognizing you're sitting in front of the computer. So if you're black, there have been loads of stories of people like, okay, I have found every light in the house, they're all pointing at my face, and finally it recognizes there is a literal person here because it didn't before. Or, you know, I have to stare directly at my computer, directly straight ahead, and I can't leave to pee. I can't, like, look around too much because it worries that I'm Googling something. I can't, you know, someone else is in the background, it thinks I'm getting help from them. But I have to do it in the living room because there's nowhere else to do it. Those technologies have arguably been more of a hindrance to a lot of people than they have been a help. There are probably a lot of technologies that we don't 
yet know about that have concerning implications of the privacy and the data of people who don't really have another option. Like, there's not much you can do if you rock up to school or you can't rock up to school and your school is saying, you know, show up on this app or you're in significant yeah. legal trouble and your parents are in significant legal trouble. Yeah, like my experience was with much younger educational years yet a number of those issues you just raised it just brought flashbacks like the fact that schools started using google classroom and what's funny about google classroom is that it just so happens it works better on chrome so i imagine chrome downloads increase mm -hmm. dramatically it's also an incredibly simplistic platform it's basically just a file management system and what i also found interesting is that how often it would fail and for me that was a Beautiful education for the planet. <laughs> that is, even trillion-dollar companies like Google can build systems that are incredibly simple, like Google Classroom, and they fail. Mm. But it doesn't matter because Google is getting a whole new generation of account holders, a whole new generation of Google app users uh, and Google Chrome users, and that's good enough. But then I just want to add one dimension we don't often talk about on top of the tech. And I read this article far too late in the pandemic and far too late in the homeschooling experience that was in the Washington Post, where a, I think it was an educational psychologist trying to explain to parents why they're finding homeschooling so hard. And it's because if there's an online class environment and you're in the room with your kid and the teacher pays attention to your kid in a negative way to say, hey, uh, your kid's not paying attention. So the kid's getting in trouble with the teacher, you're getting angry at your kid, but also you're feeling like the teacher is getting angry at you and it's taking you back to your school era. So it was, it, it was like such a oddly small T traumatic type of thing going on. And the dimension I, I thought that was missing from that article was also, what is it like to be a kid that on top of the usual having the teacher watch you and learn and monitor and test and all those things. You have your really annoying dad hovering behind you, judging and interfering and, and helping when help isn't necessarily required. And I think kids are going to have to go through a revolution in autonomy. After oh, this. oh my God. It, it's, it wasn't homeschooling, but I remember one time I had history homework and I asked my dad like one question and he got so excited. He basically wrote my history essay for me and I was so irritated. Like this wasn't like a, oh yeah, I get out of homework. This was a, what are you doing? doing i asked you for one piece of help you've written an essay you keep trying to call it our essay he got so annoyed when it got a b i was like furious when we gotta be <laughs> yes it was like oh how did our essay do it's like it wasn't our, it wasn't supposed to be our essay i'm so mad at you like i cannot even i can't imagine trying to do it at home my coping mechanism for the last stage of the pandemic which was the for in the uk it was january through to march before schools reopened was that during literacy, which was from 9 to 10 a.m. every morning, and that was one of the issues that would give rise to my anxieties more than anything else, I would start working out. So every every day, which you're not supposed to do, every day between 9 and 10, I was doing exercises in the room where the class is going on. But at least it kept me busy and getting my focus elsewhere rather than, you know, helicopter parenting. Well, this is the thing, right? I think there's probably a certain amount of helicopter parenting that has increased and maybe some 
you know, there are lots of apps that claim that they're going to help your kid learn. And if you feel like maybe Zoom school isn't isn't helping that much, maybe you're going to pick up one of these apps. And not all of them have amazing data privacy. Not all of them have amazing kind of the number of permissions some of these apps want. It's it's creepy. And you're downloading them to like your kid's phone, if your kid has a phone or tablet or, you know, your phone and handing it over. And yeah, it's really worth checking what those permissions are on those learning apps because some of them are real weird. Yeah. And when we saw the disparities around all of this on the educational front, when it came to tech was widespread and whether it is across countries. So you hear the, the stories from India where a family with only one mobile phone, which would have to be used for the kids to do their, their schooling, but that meant the parents couldn't do well, their business uh, or their jobs from their phones, that created challenges in that kind of environment, but all the way to, I don't know how it works necessarily across the country, but what I found interesting is that the families in my kid's school that had larger homes versus, well, our place, which is quite small, the odd disparity, I know this sounds ridiculous compared to what I just described in India from the stories in India, but the space to have a printer and so we don't have room for a printer. And teachers mm-hmm. had presumed that every family's got a printer. And so they'd say, okay, now print off the worksheets. And say, like, but we don't have a printer. We don't have space for a printer. We don't have space for paper. And so like, I think every family, no matter how economically advanced and technologically advanced, they all face this, this challenge of, of disparity and not being able to procure what you need at any moment in time, whether it's a book that the kids were all reading or uh, it was printing off the math papers. Well, it's the same thing here. You know, you saw stories of families sitting outside McDonald's trying to get enough internet to, to work. And it's the same here. It's the same, I think, in a lot of places. Like, the disparity between countries was pretty interesting. But the disparity within, like, the UK from, I don't own a smartphone, what do you want me to do? to I have no internet, what do you want me to do? It was pretty huge. Which is a nice segue to the COVID response using this type of tech, which is where we get into the apps. Yeah, so COVID contact tracing apps which in some cases are becoming immunity passport apps, but that's a second concern, but contact tracing apps. The number of governments who started trying to build an app that would record where you've been and who you've been close to, or some variation on that information, whether it was more data intensive or less data intensive, was fascinating. And the number of those apps that maybe didn't work that well was also fascinating. Because contact tracing apps rely on a lot of things, and one of them is uptake. You need a certain number of people to actually use them for them to be able to successfully track, you know, contacts. Because if you've got it on and you walk past three people with COVID, none of whom have the app, like, it's useless. They need people to be able to download the app, which means normally they need a certain kind of phone. They need a smartphone. They need to be able to download apps. If Even if they can, they need to have a certain level of operating system on their phone so it needs to be a certain level of recent because the app developers have assumed you have a certain level of recent os on your phone and i'm deliberately saying a certain level of os and not a certain 
kind of recency of phone, like a certain newness, I guess. Like, because a lot of new phones come with out of date operating systems. I could go out and buy a phone today that has an operating system on which con- many contact tracing apps would not work, which was immensely frustrating. And then, so assuming that everyone has a smartphone, which they don't, assuming everyone has a, you know, a decent OS on their smartphone, which they don't, assuming people want to download an app which tells, you know, in some cases records and tells the government exactly where you've been and who you've been in contact with, which they don't, then in that environment, maybe contact tracing apps would be a really good shout. You know, Apple and Google popped up to try and help solve this problem and increase you know, the trust in these apps by creating a mechanism by which they could work to keep data as much on the phone as as humanly possible so it records on the phone, you know, the IDs of phones you've bumped into, the places you've been, whatever. And then the idea is a centralized system sends out to phones, right? Let me know if I'm getting this really wrong. It sends out to phones. That's pretty darn close. I I could bore people at length about contact tracing apps because I was a little bit closer to the development of them than than is healthy, let's say. And uh, before we get into the design problem, I think we have to remember at that time, which was March, April, May 2020, the world was panicking and they didn't understand what COVID was. They didn't know how it was transmitted. So we were still washing everything. We were being told to wash your hands. That's more important than anything else. And I think now we look back and think that's ridiculous. Of course, it's airborne. But this time last year, we didn't know it was airborne. These governments weren't telling us that it was airborne. That's when I was most infuriated when Donald Trump was interviewed by a Washington Post reporter for his book. And the book came out like in May. No, it came out in the summer of last summer. And the interviews were with Trump in January and February. And Trump is telling off the record to this journalist, oh, yeah, it's airborne. It's like, why the fuck didn't they tell us this this, at that time? Because COVID apps were all designed to do things that we weren't doing as a society. It was to have an infrastructure for reporting whether or not you're well, to report where you were in case somebody else was there that might have been unwell. And fundamentally, what we weren't doing as a society is that we weren't testing. Because testing and keeping track of, for health purposes, of where people have been, that's expensive and requires infrastructure. And we've been going, particularly in the Western world, we've been doing 10 years of austerity, destroying infrastructure, and then thinking, hey, let's build an app to solve all these problems, because that will do it. And so just to pick up where you dropped off around the centralization versus the decentralization of the data, there was a lot of religious warfare when it came to data and design around whether or not the data should be centralized so that your app would report this data to a central server so that that central server can determine whether you need to be identified, well, whether you need to be told that you've been near somebody with COVID, or if it could all be done in a decentralized manner. The reason I, I was sympathetic to those who wanted to centralize is because we genuinely didn't know how COVID was transmitted. And that understanding was changing constantly. And so, in a sense, wouldn't it make sense to have an intelligence center where they could know, okay, well, based on these types of interactions, these people were only around each other for for five seconds. That's not good enough. But for a contact-based 
if it is shared by contact, then maybe 20 minutes, if you're in the same location, but your phones are never near, but 20 minutes apart from each other, you're in the same McDonald's and you pick up the same thing. How does an app supposed to identify that? And eventually it just became clear. We were hoping for the apps to do the impossible. And so fortunately, once they became relatively easy to make, because that's when Google and Apple stepped in and stepped up their game and helped build an infrastructure that wasn't privacy destructive, even though it was challenging, governments moved on, fortunately, to testing Mm -hmm. and to developing track and trace capabilities where you can speak to somebody on the phone and say, hey, I'm not feeling well. Here's all the telephone numbers of the people I interacted with over the past five days. That was a more reasonable response than can we use an app? And it's no surprise that centralization came up in the United Kingdom, where the intelligence agency in this country it loves to gather data, and the government in this country loves to gather data. And it's the same that happened in Israel, where they decided to have the internal policing agency, the Shin Bet, essentially in charge of collecting all communications metadata to identify whether or not people were were mixing. This this heavy policing approach or this heavy intelligence-based approach, which didn't help whatsoever. And one of my favorite horrible responses was when it was raised to Netanyahu in Israel that maybe Shin Bet, and Shin Bet didn't want to collect this data, but they were being tasked to, when it was identified that kids don't have mobile phones and don't generate metadata, so that's a bit of a problem, Netanyahu floated the idea of putting microchips in kids. Because in their government's mindsets, rather than build infrastructure, rather than have a healthcare system, rather than care for people, let's track, let's trace, and let's monitor them because that's how we're going to win this war because they were on a war footing. Fortunately, a year on, we're a little bit better on that. But that's when we get into immunity passports. Well, I think there are two things there. One is, I think the story in a lot of ways of at least our relationship to this pandemic has been techno-solutionism, has been oh, we've got a problem, well, what technology can solve it for us? Or someone propping up and saying, here is a technology and I finally found the problem I need to sell it to you. And the other is that, oh, I guess there are two. One is, firstly, a lot of the apps required an amount of trust that just isn't there. And that's not there because of the actions of government over the past 10, 15, 20 years. Like government in an ideal world may have wanted a particular version of this, a particularly centralized version, a particularly data intensive version. But without that trust in the UK, without that trust, it's not going to go directly to immigration services, isn't you know going to be used to condemn or control you down the line. Like no one's going to want to use that. And for good reason, because there's a history there. And without that trust in a government, what are they going to do with it? That's never going to work. It's one of those things like you can design it in a vacuum and that's all nice, and it might be the best version for public health, but it's not the best version to live with. And the other thing is, you know, Google and Apple popped up and said, here is, you know, our version of this. We're going to do our best to keep it as non-invasive as we can. And one of the stories that's come out recently is, so the Android version of this writes events, I think, to the system log. And if you download an app, it's not allowed permission to read the system log. Like if you go to the Play Store, one of the permissions that Google just doesn't really let you have is read system logs. But on pre-installed apps that come with your phone that were pre-installed by developers, by vendors, by telecoms companies, they are allowed the read system logs, the read system logs permission. And that means that 
Android can say this information doesn't leave the phone. But while those apps have the permission to read that log and do whatever they want with that information, they can't guarantee it because there is this really weird distinction for Android between pre-installed apps and downloaded apps. They're not the same thing with the Play Store. Now, just before the pandemic, we were running a campaign asking Google, you know, to shape up when it comes to their partner program, the phones that they certify as Google Play Protect phones and these weird inconsistencies with permissions on pre-installed apps. And they promised us that they were looking to regularize it with the things that you're allowed to do in the Play Store to kind of fix that balance. And we're getting back to them now about a year later, just under a year later from that response to ask them, you know, what happened with that? Because that's pretty important. You know, that that presents some pretty significant security issues. And you said you were looking into it. And and we're really interested to know, as are the people that signed our petition, as the organizations that signed on to our letter to you, what happened there? (laughs) And hopefully we'll get a response and hopefully, you know, we'll let you know what that response is. But in some ways, the techno solutionism of the pandemic the, has just kind of brought up all these issues we knew existed and exacerbated them. They're all the things that we knew were problems and, and they've created a new and much more data intensive and concerning environment for those problems to become bigger, I guess. Yeah. And, and going back to our discussion about ed tech, the positive way of looking at all of this is that before the pandemic, I don't think people often thought much about whether it was apps, whether it was what their next door neighbors had when it came to tech, what people in other parts of the country had, or what people had in other parts of the world. And because the pandemic happened to everybody, and governments and schools reached for tech, Mm -hmm. and everybody all of a sudden had to respond and try to conform. And as I mentioned, Google would sometimes crash. I think we all start to understand that technology is not this pretty box that arrives in the post from Amazon or from Apple, that everybody's got different types of tech. And a tech might be a printer, as it was in my <laughs> case, or it might be, as you as you say, a brand new phone you just bought, but the operating system's too old to run the latest app that you have to show in order to go into a pub, because otherwise they won't let you in unless you have the app on you. I think that has dawned on people that, yes, whenever governments reach for tech in the future, people are going to be a lot more cynical and say, no, I understand what it is to live a life through tech and it ain't pleasant and it varies wildly across my life and across the lives of the people in my life and across the world and it just doesn't add up, which is why I think it's so funny that governments are repeating this entire freaking fiasco when it comes to dealing with the pandemic, but this time in the context of immunity passports. So to give some context on this, and immunity passports, say six months ago, were a lot simpler than they are now, let alone what they're going to look like in about three months' time. But an immunity passport is this idea that was floated last summer That if your body shows the capability of being immune to COVID, then you should be given a document that says, hey, you are allowed to enjoy more rights. Now, when it was floated last summer, it was before there was any thought. Well, there was development of vaccines, but there was there was no certainty that vaccines would have any effect. Rather, it was on this idea that, well, if you've had COVID, you can't get it again. So go forth and live your life out in the world. 
And the ethicists were saying, please don't do this. Please don't do this. You're going to be basically enticing people to get COVID so they can have freedom. And people are going to die as a result of that. And the science wasn't on the side of immunity passports at the time because it was not clear whether or not you could get COVID twice. And for what it's worth, it's still not crystally clear whether or not you can get COVID twice. And so fortunately, last summer, the immunity passport idea died away, much to the unhappiness of the ID industry. But then when the vaccines became viable and started getting deployed, governments got excited again about vaccine passports. And one of the classic examples is yet again in Israel, where all bad ideas seem to start when it comes to the pandemic. The government decided to create green passes that when you get the vaccine, and Israel is one of the first countries to deploy the vaccine, they were deploying the Pfizer vaccine, you would get a passport, which you could then tr- use to visit restaurants and go to schools and where, like to participate again in life. So essentially, you would have to show ID in order to get into all of these establishments. Now, fortunately, it didn't work out that way. Although if you read any newspaper across the world, you would imagine that the Israeli passport system is perfect and is constantly used. Whereas the reality is pubs and restaurants couldn't be arsed to check your status before you come in. And that's when you start to understand that a passport system really, except for the control freaks and within the Israeli government, there are control freaks. And within every government, there are control freaks. In their minds, they want passports because they can say yes to some people, no to others. But for the scientists and the social scientists and governments, they want a passport because they want to induce people into getting vaccinated. And wasn't there some evidence that in Israel, a vaccine passport was actually making people more wary of the vaccine? My understanding was the vaccine passport was making people feel like the vaccine wasn't something they were doing for like the good of their own or public health, but rather a much more complicated negotiation with government that actually felt a lot creepier and more conspiracy theory and a bit scarier than it otherwise would. So actually, it didn't help with vaccine hesitancy, was my understanding. Yeah, you're nailing it. And social psychologists and ethicists have come out yet again saying, don't do this. First of all, don't make it mandatory because that will just create more fear and frustration and anger. Don't rely on an ID system to make it mandatory because it'll create specters of police states and people will become even more hesitant and angry and worried. And rather just try to support people on a positive path because you know what? It's okay to be hesitant and afraid of injecting something into your body that was only developed three months ago. I would find it unnatural if you weren't. And because in a sense, this takes us back to tech solutionism. There's a large number of people who rightly get excited about a vaccine saying, yay, this is the solution to a complex global health problem. Throw it in me and everything's going to be fine. Whereas there are a number of other people out there in the world who say, well, hold on. This might be a little bit challenging. Can we actually have a conversation? Can we go on a journey together to find out how we can best get this understood and build the infrastructure around the world so that it's not just the rich, it's not just the elite who are able to get their vaccines, like the people who traveled to Kuwait in order to get their vaccines uh, because they could. Mm-hmm. Um, and rather, can we make sure that it gets to everybody in an equitable manner? But no, uh, as ever, we jumped towards whether it was the tech of the vaccine or the tech of the passport. Now, that was, say, December and January, particularly with Israel leading the way, unfortunately. 
Now we're at a much different place because even the governments like the UK that at first was so proud of how quickly they got out of the uh, the starting blocks on the, on the vaccine, they thought, yes, a vaccine passport's a great thing because British vaccine passport holders will be so empowered across the world. Then things started to slow down and then deployment and everybody got a little bit more hesitant. So just using the example of travel within Europe as a great microcosm of all the problems that the world's going to face with these passports is that because the vaccine hasn't been deployed in the United Kingdom to the rate that it was initially hoped, because the vaccine has not been deployed across Europe to the rate that everybody had hoped, I think by this point, all governments were saying, yes, let's have a vaccine passport and that will allow for travel. But because not enough people have the vaccine, they have to allow for a passport, and now they're very careful not to call it a passport, it's a certificate that can guarantee three different things. First, either you've had the, the vaccine, and hopefully it'd be two doses, or you have immunity because you've had COVID before, or you've been tested in the last three days, and so you can travel to another country. So that's a different set of certification, but it's not as clean and pretty as a vaccine passport, because at least for a vaccine passport, you go and get your vaccine, the issue with something. Here, you have to either get a vaccine and get issued with something, and then you have to show your ID in order to get that vaccine, which is a horrible fiasco that we're already seeing in India is leading to huge disparity in the deployment of the vaccine. Second, you have to get blood tested to this is not one and two, it's one or two. So, or you get your blood tested to show that you have had the virus at some point, or you have to go and get tested within a 72-hour window of you landing in another place, get the test result back in time for you to get to the airport and travel. And it's just going to be a clusterfuck of bureaucracy and pain of a late test result, meaning your family can't travel. And just my final thing on this, this rant of mine, kids can't get the vaccine yet. The U.S. has made the most progress and 12-year-olds are now getting the vaccine. But any family that wants to travel this summer is going to wish that they could get a vaccine passport, but they can't because their kids can't get a vaccine passport. So they have to go through the logistics of going to get a test. So their kids are going to get nose swabbed and throat swabbed, which is going to be a wholly unpleasant experience for these kids. And they're going to do it while the parents are stressing about getting to the airport on time, getting the test result on time, showing up with all the documentation. And this is in their home country. Then travel to another country where they have fewer rights and try to justify in the various languages that these test results come in, that these are valid test results where... A border agent in, I don't know, Italy or Greece, how's that border agent to know a a small clinic in southwest London is a valid clinic for issuing this for kids who are annoyed that they're queuing for three hours to get through when pre-Brexit you didn't have, you know, it's just a clusterfuck. But also not every, like, kids can't get the vaccine, but also immunocompromised people, you know, who already can't get lots of different vaccinations. Can't Some of them can't get this vaccination. Pregnant women, a lot of them still can't get this vaccination. Like, there are huge groups in society. There was a really interesting example of just that, where uh, they're still doing tests on new vaccines. Mm. And they've been begging people to to join these, these, these tests. But if you are part of a trial of a vaccine, you can't get 
a vaccine passport. And yeah. even if you got a, uh, a document saying you've received this trial vaccine, it's not valid because the vaccine passport is dependent on which vaccine you get and whether it's approved within that country. Because not all countries have approved all vaccines. And some countries, like if, you know, if you're in a country with little to no access to the vaccine, then you just can't ever travel. Like if you're in a country in Africa where the vaccination rate has been extremely low because, you know, countries like the UK have been buying up the global stock of vaccine, then I guess the answer is you just don't get to travel for the rest of like for the next couple of years. I mean, it's wild and it's really frustrating and it's really odd that it has to be digital, right? Because so I've already got a yellow card, I think they're called, which is functionally a document that says, yes, I've been vaccinated for yellow fever, which means there are lots of countries I can go to where otherwise I either wouldn't be able to get in or I'd be vaccinated in the airport. Like there is an established system for saying, yes, I've been vaccinated. It's with, you know, this is the number of the serial number of the vaccine I got or whatever. And it's not digital. It's someone writes it down and puts a stamp on a card. But apparently that's not good enough anymore, even though it's been working for a really long time. Apparently now it has to be digital because I guess some companies want to sell some things. Yeah, we're working with the WHO on that progress that they call progress towards the digital. And unfortunately, it's a very frustrating experience working with the WHO and all the interested bodies who want to see a vaccine passport, a digital vaccine passport. And they're trying to build this perfect system saying, oh, we can build it just like the passport system was built post 9-11. And I was part of that entire fiasco. And I think people listening to this podcast have probably heard me swear about the post 9-11 passport environment. So I won't go at length at, at that. But what's one thing worth noting is that when the WHO looks to the travel passport standard, what they're saying is based on a crypto public key encryption certification system of what when you show up at a place they check the uh, certificate to see if it has been signed by the right authority and then that should be good going to the problem i was saying of how is a italian border agent supposed to recognize the test result from a southwest london test center and so they think well tech will solve that and we say well look that's hard to do and they say well look the passport standard does it just fine and this is one of my frustrations because after 9-11 that's when they decided to digitize passports and have this this global signature scheme set up and we were telling them at the time that sounds complicated i don't think it's going to work and they said it's going to work lo and behold 10 years later it was an accident that a journalist in the u.s found out that the u.s government who had pushed this entire standard for 10 years forcing countries to adopt it saying you can't travel to our country unless you've adopted this it was never verified they didn't even use the tech to verify and so the fact that the who thinks it can look to that post 9-11 moment as an educational moment saying let's adopt that and we're thinking no because you don't realize when you don't deploy this well it's just going to be an expensive fiasco that excludes bucket loads of people along the way keep it simple keep it paper why not but they'll say fraud and all these other types of problems. But we'll say but that's, people are that's, humans. They need to. This is what's wild, right? There's already fraud. Like the vaccine status stuff has already created. And it's it's not hilarious, but it's interesting watching it in real time, creating a black market that otherwise would not exist. And like, you know, there was with the um, 
I think it was the Indian app. It showed a QR code of whether you were like green, you were safe, you were good to go, or whether you were orange or red or whatever. And people were screenshotting a green QR code and setting it as like their background so that, or as a picture so they could show it and be like, yeah, I'm fine. No worries, man. Without even having to download the app. And like, you know, that's an isolated example, but it's also not. There are so many different kind of ways to spoof these technologies that are slowly kind of all very actually not slowly very suddenly emerging because we're creating this bizarre black market for these things like the testing certification so the uk have just decided hey we'll get borders from europe which is always a fun and interesting interesting scheme and truck drivers are coming in and they've got to show their testing certificates or whatever and the government was saying yeah um we have the problem is we've no idea what they look like really even then we're finding like a hundred odd frauds a day and when we assume loads more are getting through because we have no idea what they look like like we're just creating this bizarre system we're basically we're pointing at something and saying what if we created new crime what if we did that that seems like a fun idea it's really stupid and it's really and i just wish we would sort the problem out it's kind of like the app all over again it's like instead of deploying testing instead of trying to help people and build the infrastructure to help people we think let's put a thing on top of that and make it an app and it's the same thing with a lot of the edtech and the proctoring shit it's saying hey we don't trust you we're going to create surveillance tools and technologies so we can really really double check you're not doing this bad thing because we don't trust you but at the same time we're not going to provide the support we're not going to provide the help that you need to obey the rules that we've set up like in the uk if you can't go to work because you're isolating there's very little that helps you do that financially which means a lot of people are stuck in this terrible situation where they're ill but they have to work or else they can't feed their family and it's like rather than trying to deal with that situation and saying that is an insane decision to have to make you know financially we're here for you the uk and lots of other countries say oh no you know what what if we piled more authoritarian the kind of tech on you what if we piled more and more ways of watching you to try and make sure you obey the rules without ever working out why you're not like without ever having that conversation and it's it's ridiculous it's just silly. <laughs> like, there's, there's there's a really obvious thing we could do to to at least take some steps towards solving this problem here. But no, 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 no. We're just going to try and watch you. We're yeah. going to spend more and more money watching you to make you obey the rules, even though that's not yeah. how that works. It's just yeah. silly. And I, I, I just hope that's not the legacy of the pandemic. I, like, going back to the educational, going back to everybody's lived experience, I kind of hope to take away from this pandemic, the legacy is that tech is fraught. Tech is helpful, but tech should not be the plaster that you lay on top of a very deep wound that is our public infrastructure and our health infrastructure. And I hope that's what we take away versus, oh, tech was so helpful. Look at what country X did with tech. Therefore, we shall make sure we have a constant surveillance system going forward to avoid future pandemics. And I hope when we do, as governments, as as society, as as we, when the pandemic is over, if we ever get through this, we look back and try to identify when we tried to solve the problem versus when we tried to solve problems that we created to solve the problem. Yeah. And I think this is what we're dealing with when it comes to vaccination right now. The best thing that could happen for vaccination is to let the health systems vaccinate as many people 
however they see fit as soon as possible and not encumber them with identity requirements so that they could then issue these types of documents so that we can open up sooner. Because by doing all that, you're slowing down the initial mm-hmm. thing, which is getting the vaccine out to as many people. This is the other wild thing, right? It's like public health systems kind of know what they're doing. Public health systems that work well kind of know what they're doing, right? Contact tracing in the UK already existed for some you know, um, sexually transmitted diseases, but we didn't scale that up. No, 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 no. We thought hey, you know, it's a great plan. Let's go with, you know, in the UK, it was outsourcing in different departments of government and trying to set up new systems. And broadly, as far as I can tell, when we've let public health bodies do their job and supported public health bodies to work well, things have gone a lot better than when, you know, other departments have stepped in or technologists have stepped in and said, hey, I've got something shiny for you. And it's like broadly... Doctors know how to treat patients. Scientists know how to research things. And where we've supported them to do that as quickly and as effectively as possible, it has gone well. When we haven't, when we've stepped in with an app, with a technology, it has become a problem. And, you know, sometimes we can help people do things better. We can support teachers who are really good at teaching, but maybe aren't as good at reading and understanding privacy policies because that's not their job to do those things better. But broadly, it's about supporting people who know what they're doing rather than trying to create whole new systems from nothing or repurpose systems that people have already been trying to sell us, you know, for this new big problem. It's like, no, 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 no. It's not the blockchain people that have finally found their moment. It's the doctors and the scientists and the researchers who have been living this moment, you know, in small ways already for years, and they know what they're doing. And the blockchain people are just excited to finally have some new terrible moment in which they can try and sell you their technology. Like every pandemic, and they're probably, as far as I can tell from the news, there probably will be more. Not every pandemic has to be like this pandemic. You know, I really hope this is the one where we tried lots of things, worked out which ones don't work, and next time we do it better, and next time we build the trust that maybe we didn't capitalize on at the beginning of the pandemic this time, next time we understand better about unequal vaccine distribution and and work harder on that. Like there's still time in this pandemic as well to do those things. And slowly, you know, the US kind of deciding actually maybe patent protection isn't the most important thing right now. Slowly, I'm hoping you could kind of see glimmers of people learning those lessons. But yeah, not every pandemic has to be this pandemic, you know? And that's a beautiful point to close off this podcast. Thanks for listening. You can support PI to keep tracking the global response to COVID at pvcy.org slash donate. And you can like and subscribe to the podcast on whichever platform you use. It's also available on our website at privacyinternational.org. And music is courtesy of Sepia. This podcast is produced by Max Burnell for Privacy International. Cool. That was fun. Thanks very much.